I am much more morally outraged by the corruption which it is feasible to remove that we are not removing than I am outraged by types of informality and rule-violating behavior and even populist clientless politics to which I have no immediate solution. Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. The voice you just heard may sound familiar to you. This is because you heard it four weeks ago in part one of our interview with Paul Haywood and Mushtaq Khan, which we recorded in London this January. As we came home with so much fascinating material, we decided to make a two-part podcast out of it. If you haven't had the chance to listen to part one, I suggest you go back and check it out. However, today's episode stands for itself and is easy to follow without having listened to part one. In the unlikely event that you don't know who Mushtaq and Paul are, let me give you a brief introduction. Paul Haywood is the Sir Francis Hill Professor of European Politics at the University of Nottingham and Mushtaq Khan is Professor of Economics at the SOAS University London. In today's episode we cover a lot of topics. For example, the role of social norms, the nexus between populism and corruption, the potential of digital technologies as an anti-corruption tool, and a discussion on random control trials as a method to test policy interventions. Have fun listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. So I wanted to pick up on another notion that's currently discussed in behavioral research, and that's basically the distinction of social norms into descriptive and injunctive. Right? So the idea that some are just what you observe that other people do, And the others are more about notions of acceptability, what's permissible, and, and so on. And coming back to the project that, that you, Paul, mentioned also earlier um, in, in Tanzania and the health sector, when you look at social norms, what insights can you gain that go beyond one particular sector? And so coming back to this comparative, to the comparative question, to what extent can you then, A, draw conclusions that help other projects, but at the same time, another question I had would be, How can you then come up with measurements of success? So the, the, the challenge of getting robust evidence is a major one. We're dealing with projects that last two years. And within those two years, not only does the, the project have to be framed properly, you've got to have an in-depth understanding. And because of the emphasis we've placed on the importance of understanding specific context, you've got to really dig deep to be able to understand exactly what it is that you're dealing with. So to do that research, do whatever it is that you need to do to, to develop a particular kind of intervention, test that intervention, and get a readout in a two-year time frame is often completely unrealistic. And so what we find is, in many ways, a lot of these projects operate almost as kind of proof-of-concept ideas where you, you develop an idea and you can... You know, perhaps do one randomized controlled trial, for instance, or you can develop different kinds of, of interventions. But where they are really promising, then we hope that there's the potential to get further support to take them further. So we, we, we've seen that in a couple of examples. So one of the projects on, uh, say, identifying red flag risks in procurement. This is the, the project led by uh, 
Liz David Barrett at Sussex and Mishi Fazekas, who is now at the Central European University. They've done some really fantastic work using big data to identify corruption risks in the use of overseas aid procurement projects using significant data from the World Bank and other organizations. And that project has been so promising that they've actually managed to secure quite significant additional funding to roll it out in, in more examples and actually test it to see how well it works in practice. Now, they couldn't have done that simply in, in, in the two-year time frame, but now they're actually in a situation where they're, they've got a rather longer time frame in which, which to test that. Or another project led by my colleague Jan Meir Saling at Nottingham and Christian Schuster at UCL, which is looking at uh, training of civil servants and the effectiveness of, of training. Again, the, the original project operated as a kind of proof of concept, but now they're working closely with governments in, in various different parts of the world to actually put these interventions in practice. So they've got further support and further funding to do this. So I think that's the way we, we need to look at this, is that the two-year projects on their own are unlikely to be able to develop the kind of evidence that we want. But if we can show that there's real promise, then hopefully we can get additional support, particularly from partners, uh, from country partners, from practitioners, from agencies, etc., to put further resources in to help develop the the evidence side of, of, of what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's really interesting because this is something I wanted to pick up on is um, usually when the, the general public gets any news about the corruption is when TI releases the, the latest report and then it's the, the CPI and uh, we actually see no real development there, no real improvement. So do you f sometimes find yourself in the position to justify yourself? Because critics might say... Maybe the, all those projects don't work. And it relates a little bit to what you said before, Paul, is that so much of the anti-corruption work is focused on the nation state. And you just mentioned that you evaluate your projects differently. But is that sometimes a problem of communication, maybe, of communicating with funding organizations or with the general public about these issues? Um, I think that can be a problem, but it, it, it's becoming less of a problem precisely because one of the things we, we mentioned earlier is the, the recognition on the part of many of the organizations that are engaged in this area that the traditional approaches have not worked. And so, you know, you talk to people in the World Bank, they recognize that, you know, there's no point in just pushing the same agenda, the same toolkit approach as has been done for the last 25 years, it doesn't work. We know why it doesn't work. Mushtaq has explained very clearly some of the reasons why, why it doesn't work. And I think all of these major organizations are now asking themselves, well, what can we do instead? What can we do differently? So at that level, I think there is space for you know further support. At the level of the public, that's more difficult. And I think we are reaping the unintended consequences of having pushed this idea of corruption being a problem and promoted that notion through things like the Corruption Perceptions Index for so long that I think we've absolutely embedded the idea that, you know, corruption is this, you know, irresolvable reality that occurs across the board and there's nothing you can do about it. But in a sense that, you know, that's a reality and it's an important one and it's a very damaging one. But that's not what, that's not the audience that we're working with. We're trying to work with 
you know, the people, the, the change agents, the people that can actually do something about it. And, and so whilst that public perception is unfortunate and very damaging, it's not something that we on our own can address. So I think that, you know, one of the challenges beyond the research is actually educating the public and also policymakers in advanced countries about the nature of the corruption problem. When we talk about corruption, we are actually describing a whole raft of different things. And one of the messages that comes out of the SOASA's program is that not all of these corruption problems can be immediately addressed. There is no feasible immediate solution to it. This is not a message that people like to hear. They think that we are almost close to getting rid of corruption. And if something could be done, we would get to a non-corrupt society. What we are saying is that this is a long transition over decades, but we don't wait for development to happen because development won't happen without doing lots of anti-corruption activities at a detailed sectoral level. But those detailed sectoral interventions will not translate into a shift in the corruption index for the country as measured by Transparency International or, or anybody else, because that adds up lots of different types of things going on from the informality of the informal sector to political clientelism to the fact that you have a weak rule of law and these are decade-long processes but we can do something about corruption in power sector contracts pretty quickly we can do something about skill sector um, fraud pretty quickly we can do something about doctor absenteeism pretty quickly it will not translate into the national indicator but we need to bring out indicators at the sectoral level and that's i think the, the evidence-based task so there are again coming back to this intersection of feasibility and impact we need to find anti-corruption interventions which have impact you can immediately show so many people have now got jobs so many people have now got businesses or poverty has come down or treatment has gone up in hospitals and it should be feasible but it's not the kind of anti-corruption that the public think of as anti-corruption which is a general reduction of the corruption indicator a general reduction of political clientelism and political accountability but they often don't know their own history. These processes took decades, if not centuries, in advanced countries. This is not an argument for complacency. This is an argument for real radicalism, but a radicalism that moves away from the pseudo-radicalism of trying to do the big things which don't get anywhere to the radicalism of digging down into solvable problems and working hard to solve them. And I think that that requires a little bit of education, of public expectations, and of also even more than that, of policymakers in advanced countries who often have no clue of the nature of the beast they're trying to attack. I think to pick up on that, I think one of the ideas to have this podcast is to sort of encourage what some people call slow democracy, right? So you have an opportunity to really dig a little deeper than maybe just a short clip or let's say a, a talk show where you get 30 seconds, right? And then somebody would put you on the spot and say, Mushtaq, what have you achieved in the last project? And people don't have sufficient time to explain it. So I want to give you the opportunity to answer to that, Paul. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing I wanted to comment on was a development which, in some senses, ironically, has made the public perception probably even worse, but has maybe helped with getting a, a better understanding amongst 
you know, some of the, the key policymakers and big anti-corruption agencies and some of the big organizations in, in this field. And that's the revelations that came through things like the, the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, the LuxLeaks, the Odebrecht scandal, etc. And what this has done, I think, is, is, is made it much, much clearer that Corruption precisely is, is this multifaceted, complex issue. It's not a thing. It's not something that lends itself to being measured in terms of an amount at a, a jurisdictional level. It is, it's complex. It's multifaceted. It's changing. It's developing. There are new forms that emerge. And one of the things that we've discovered is, is the interpenetration, the clear interpenetration between corrupt networks that operate in the established developed world and those that are operating within the developing world as well. And I think that has raised awareness of some of the complexities of of corruption. Not enough, not nearly enough, but it does help to move us away from, I think, this rather simplistic understanding that corruption is this thing that can simply be A, captured and B, combated in sort of rather straightforward ways. On the other hand, though, of course, the fact that there are these ever greater scandals emerging all the time absolutely reinforces the sense that at a public level that, you know, corruption is completely rife, widespread and absolutely everywhere. So we have developments which, which are working in kind of opposite ways some beneficial and some negative at, at the same time. Well, that is fascinating. I would like to pick up on this um, and asking you, Paul, as a political scientist, because what we experienced in some countries, most prominently probably Brazil, is that populist leaders run on corruption um, to push their populist agenda. And uh, we have this whole draining the swamp. And do you think... At some points, even this over-moralization of corruption maybe becomes a problem? Mm -hmm. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, th I think we are, you know, this is an un a classic case of unintended consequences. I think the people who, who first started out in the mid-1990s really pushing an anti-corruption agenda Anti-corruption goes in in sort of waves historically. It's, it, it wasn't, it didn't start in the, in the mid 1990s. There's been previous, many previous examples of of anti-corruption drives throughout world history. But we are currently in in this sort of latest drive, which did start in in the mid 1990s, and it was largely pushed by people that came out of the World Bank and. Started, you know, the people that created Transparency International as, as a as a major anti-corruption uh, NGO, and then that has led to a, a very particular take on corruption. And one of the key things, one of the key drivers of of this latest phase, has been precisely the the, the focus on measuring corruption and the idea that you can capture an amount of corruption. Now, clearly, of course, we need to measure corruption because. Unless you can measure it, you don't know the, the scale or, or, or the scope of what you're trying to, to target. But what we need is, is a much more sensible, sophisticated way of understanding what it is that we're measuring. So, so the problem isn't the attempt to measure. The problem is the idea that you can kind of somehow bring all of corruption together into a single capturable amount and lay that onto an individual unit of analysis, which is the, the nation state. That's where the problem starts, because then you do start to move towards this rhetoric of country X is more corrupt than country Y. Clearly, 
there are much, much more extensive corruption problems in some places than in others. But it's also equally the case that corruption is a much, much more complex and involved issue than is suggested by these rather crude measures. But by having those crude measures, you create the possibility to develop a rhetoric around corruption being a national level problem wherever you're talking about it. And that has, because we've pushed this issue so hard, created the space for populist leaders to say, well, you know, this doesn't work. The system isn't working. Corruption is a problem. I'm going to come in as your anti-corruption champion. And it, it's, it's a very attractive appeal. It's always a, a, a good thing to say, you know, I'm against corruption. Who isn't? But it does mean that we contribute to an ever more dangerous simplification of political messages so that you know, politics gets played out more in, in terms of, you know, who's cleaner, who's whiter, who's, who's who, you know, it's less about policy than and more about just slogans. So anti-corruption Particularly, if you look at the, the former communist world, you know what's often referred to as the politics of compromat. The you know the the whole way that politics got played out in 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 the post-Soviet era was very much around just trying to get dirt on your opponents. And this, unfortunately, is very very damaging for for democracy. Is the way that increasingly politics is being played out. Yeah, for, for me personally, as a scholar in political communication, this is really intriguing because uh, it seems so much that we talk about the general perception of corruption is that there is an inherent problem of how we communicate what corruption is so that the general public starts thinking differently about it. And I think this feeds exactly into what uh, what populist leaders use as an excuse or maybe as the silver bullet to fight corruption is just get me elected and then we um, we get rid of corruption entirely. I, I took it at slightly differently, but it's not inconsistent with what Paul is saying. I am much more morally outraged by the corruption which it is feasible to remove that we are not removing, then I am outraged by types of informality and rule-violating behavior and even populist clientless politics to which I have no immediate solution. Right? I, I find it very difficult to get outraged about something to which I have no solution. I find it much easier to get outraged about things to which I can see a solution. So I think one way of cutting through this public perception misunderstanding is to say that we should be genuinely outraged about those problems to which we have a solution. Now, if you say the solution is this, but the solution is not feasible, then I think that is where we need to engage with the public. So if the public says that you can go to India and have a, a social democratic welfare politics where everything is above board and, and companies and citizens will give contributions to political parties transparently and they will then engage in manifestos um, which will um, uh, say to the people, if you vote for us, this is how much we will tax and spend and that will actually get you elected. Well, we can demonstrate that this won't work because in that context, a party which has hidden sources of funds and which will not be revealed by those who are funding them, which is able to target resources to particular castes, communities, ethnicities, and religions, will have a willing formula and can win. In other words, there is no feasible way of doing the social democratic solution till you have 
roughly a per capita income of around eight to ten thousand dollars where you have lots of firms who are paying lots of taxes where the number of people paying taxes in india is not a few thousand but few million at least then you will get this accountable politics where taxpayers say we are paying you and you respond to us well if the number of taxpayers in a country of 1.3 billion is a few tens of thousands you're not going to get that right so i think this is the kind of debate that we need to get into. But what absolutely makes me morally outraged is when failures in economic policy, sometimes driven by development partners and their misunderstanding of what is going on, results in massive losses of public resources and generates corruption, which is avoidable. Can I give you an example of this? Sure. So one of the case studies we are doing is research on political collusion and overpricing in the power sector in Bangladesh with massive amounts of potential hidden corruption. We don't have direct evidence of the corruption, but we can see that power sector contracts are given to politically connected companies at very high prices of generation, much higher than the technical cost. And the result of this is currently about a billion dollar subsidy from the exchequer to these companies which is a massive social loss. Now, this overpricing is happening very transparently, and it might appear that all that needs to be done is to transparently reveal who these contractees are. But the problem is it is already transparent. People know what is going on. And once we started looking at this in detail, it emerged that the problem was a very unexpected one. The problem was that around 10 years ago, when the government was giving out contracts or tenders for building power plants, no good investors were bidding to build these power plants. So there were tenders after tenders when there were no bidders. And at some point, the government decided to change the law to allow it to have non-tendered contracts. In other words, without any competition, give the contract to their favored party. Then we went further back in history and saw that 20 years ago, there were tenders and competitive people bid, and they built some of the cheapest power plants in Asia. So in the early 2000s, Bangladesh was the benchmark for independent power projects in Asia. By the late 2000s, no one was bidding in these contracts. And then the government moved to these uncompetitive tenders, resulting in this massive collusive pricing. In other words, in the same country, the same people were behaving very differently at different times. This is exactly the kind of question that Soa says gets really excited about. How do you explain this massive change in behavior? Why did people bid and then not bid? And again, we found an answer which no one expected. We found that in the good old days when people were bidding, there were small direct subsidies that were available in the form of low-cost loans coming from ultimately the World Bank, the ADB, and other international financial institutions, which went to winning bidders. And because winning bidders had a low-cost line of credit, their cost of generation was low, and they were then not dependent on subsidies from the government to help them sell their power. That allowed good bidders to bid, and because good bidders were bidding, good meaning politically unconnected bidders, they checked each other. Remember what I said about says The bulk of enforcement happens horizontally. 
I'm a bidder, you're a bidder. If I can see you're doing something wrong, I start shouting about it. And because the World Bank and other international agencies were involved, they could enforce procurement rules because it was their money and insiders were complaining. Now, what happened is that because of the huge success of these independent power projects, the government of Bangladesh and the World Bank decided they're so efficient, we don't need to give them any small direct subsidies. They can raise money in the market. Big mistake. That one small policy change meant that by just the cost of capital going up by a few basis points, the cost of generation went up to beyond the level at which they could sell. The investor then became dependent on public subsidies. The politically unconnected investor was not any more sure that they would get these subsidies in time. You have a $400, $500 million project. If the government delays payment, you have default on your loans. You don't care that the government is giving you a sovereign guarantee and watertight documents. You don't have a rule of law in these places. You don't trust it. So what happened was that the good bidders went out. They weren't bidding. Tenders were given. No one was bidding. So the government didn't just collude to create this rent capture. It had a real problem. And it didn't understand what the source of this problem was. And the World Bank didn't understand the source of this problem. They tried to fight this problem with procurement rules, not understanding the economics of operating in a high-risk, poor rule-of-law environment where small upfront subsidies can de-risk your investments and get the good investors in. Again, we have spent a couple of years digging out masses of evidence on the prices at which different power plants have supplied electricity and the different contractual arrangements. And we can show with very hard statistical evidence using very good statistical techniques that simply the removal of these small direct subsidies, and I'm, I mean really a few cents on each unit, resulted in a 66% increase in the price of electricity, right? And that increase in the price of electricity happened because now only politically connected companies were bidding. There were no more competitive contracts. And you can imagine what kinds of collusion then happened between the demand side and the supply side. And, and this is a solvable problem. So when we took this to the World Bank and other international agencies, they are really interested again. Okay, And now there is a, a huge amount of other literature that is coming up, not for mainstream power investments, but for green investments in developing countries, which shows that de-risking these investments is a socially desirable policy. And what we are saying is it's not just for green investments, it's for any investments in the power sector. If you want to get good investments in cleaner technologies, and, and gas is a much better technology than some of the furnace oil and diesel that is being now used in Bangladesh because of these overpriced contracts, then we have to go back to a de-risking strategy. Now, normally people don't think of de-risking strategy as an anti-corruption strategy, but our evidence shows that it is. So we are coming up with completely innovative ideas about how to get rid of avoidable kinds of corruption which is not because people have necessarily bad intentions or uh, bad social norms or bad you know, integrity, although many of them do. It's simply because no one will invest in a country like Bangladesh without a de-risking strategy who is not politically connected. And if the only people who are investing are politically connected, 
what do you expect? Because then no one is going to complain about procurement rules. Who is going to enforce the procurement rules if all the insiders are politically connected? No enforcement agency from the outside can come and enforce procurement rules. You need some insiders who want the rules to be enforced in their own interest. Then you will have rule enforcement. Is that kind of avoidable corruption, the avoidable loss of massive resources, we are talking about billions of dollars in each country, which is just being wasted because we haven't figured out actually if we want these people to follow rules. And by the way, the same people followed rules not so long ago, or the some people in the same sector are following the rules and others aren't. How do you explain these differences? So while I'm perfectly willing to accept that there is a social norm problem, there is a, all of these problems, I am much more concerned with the existing social norms, why some people are following the rules, and why some people are, are bidding cheaper power projects mm -hmm. and why some people are not collusive. If we can fix those problems slowly, then we create exactly the social support for the bigger changes in social norms that we want to see. But if we don't fix these incentive problems, I'm afraid I don't think that we can change the social norms because people will say, actually, we have opened it up. It's an open tender. But look, no one is bidding. There's a power shortage. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And when the government came in and changed the law, and said we're now going to have uncompetitive contracts. You know what? It was popular. People wanted power. People didn't care who is this, you know, collusive company who is now coming in. There were eight-hour, nine-hour power cuts in, in the capital of Bangladesh. So it's those kinds of solvable problems that we are interested in. And the evidence suggests that in many cases there are solutions, but there are many cases when there aren't solutions. It's not that our approach finds a solution to every corruption problem, but there are plenty of solvable problems. I want to follow up on, well, something that you just said, Mushtaq, and something that you said earlier, Paul, namely the problem of collusion in public procurement. And I think that sort of picking up on the idea of solvable problems, in Ukraine there is this famous example of ProZoro being a technical solution to this problem. And there is among younger anti-corruption practitioners this hope that new technologies might be used to successfully reduce corruption. You mentioned earlier one project that's sort of fueled on big data, right? A lot of these contracts, I think, uh, made available through the World Bank mm -hmm. that allow very in-depth analysis to maybe detect certain types of collusion, but maybe also blockchain as one technology to avoid collusion in the first place. What's your take on this sort of new trend in anti-corruption as potentially being, you know, the technical solution being one of the ways to move forward? So I think uh, technical solutions are obviously very attractive because they, they suggest that there are fixes that you can put in place which make it impossible for uh, the agents involved to engage in in corrupt practices. And You know, undoubtedly, we want procurement processes which are much more regulated and uh, rule-bound than often is the case. But we'd be mistaken, I think, to imagine that technical solutions on their own are some kind of magical fix. And blockchain's a really interesting example because blockchain is presented both as you know, the way you can solve corruption and also, you know, a great facilitator of corruption. And, and you know, the arguments on both sides can be made very persuasively. So I don't think the technical solutions on their own are the answer. One of the interesting 
projects that uh, those, so Liz David Barrett and, and Mishi Fazekas, who've been looking at the procurement data and, and doing work on that, one of the th- questions that they've raised themselves from looking at this is, are we in a situation where it's a little bit like whack-a-mole, where you, you, you knock corruption down in one area and it springs up in another? Because it, if you go back to this whole, you know, basic question of incentives, why are people, why are people getting engaged in corruption? Well, a lot of people are engaged in corruption because it, it pays off financially. They make money from, from it. There's a benefit to them. So if that benefit is stopped in one arena, well, they're not going to say, well, shucks, you know, that's it, I can't do it anymore. They're going to look for other arenas in, in which they can benefit. And this is one of the, the developments that we've seen in regard to corruption is that there are new modalities, new forms, new opportunities for new types of corruption to emerge precisely on the back of some of the technological developments that we've seen. So if you look at financial trading, for instance, the way that stock exchanges have changed in in their functioning has created new opportunities for new forms of corruption which didn't exist in in the past. So the technological solutions are very attractive in principle, but on their own they're not going to change. What what you've got to do is marry them to the specifics of the particular issues that you're trying to address. And in some cases, a lot of the cases that we're dealing with, particularly in regard to some of the very real on-the-ground problems in terms of, say, distribution of health resources. So some some of the projects in GIA, for instance, are looking at, you know, why do pharmaceutical goods not reach the points at which they're supposed to get to in order to be distributed to the people who need them? You know, technological solutions are only going to take you so far because there are so many other factors in play in terms of that supply chain as to where things actually go go wrong. And so we need to understand in more depth what the the whole supply chain problem is. And the technological solutions will only come into play at certain points within that. So unless you can actually fit that within a broader understanding of the complexity of the problems that you're dealing with on their own, they're not going to be the, the fix that people would like them to be. I think one of the influential papers that has come out of the SOAS ACE project is one on the use of digital identities as an anti-corruption tool in developing countries. And we've looked at all of the evidence on the use of digital identity. So what that is, is a lot of fraud in developing countries happens because um, fake identities are created to capture subsidies, to capture money, and so on. And digital identities were put forward as a, as a mechanism, particularly in India with its Aadhaar system, as a way of giving every citizen a unique number linked to biometric data so you could have no identity fraud, and then linking the delivery of social services, particularly subsidies and so on, to those numbers to reduce the level of leakage that was happening because of bureaucrats and politicians colluding to siphon off resources. So we looked at that you know, the digital identity space. And it shows not just that it's not a solution to the problem. And as Paul was saying, it creates new problems. We would put it more strongly. The idea that digital identities or technologies solve problems comes from a very simple economic theory, which is that the problem of corruption in developing countries is one of asymmetric information, that 
I as a bureaucrat have information, you as a citizen don't have this information. As soon as this information becomes transparent, because you have a number, it's linked to an entitlement, I cannot then deny that you have this entitlement, the asymmetric information gets lowered or disappears, and a certain type of corruption goes away. This is actually behind a lot of standard economics approaches to corruption. It's, it assumes that it's really an asymmetric information problem. And what we argue is that, yes, it is partly an asymmetric information problem, but it's largely in developing countries also an asymmetric power problem. And the asymmetric power problem is that you may know that you are not getting your entitlement, but you have no capacity to do anything about it. Right? Because I have the power to completely ignore you and there isn't enough social support across society for the enforcement of a general rule of law which says that any rule violation will be overturned. Now, if you understand that developing countries have relatively weak rule of law, they generally have a strong rule by law that the powerful are enforcing rules on others. And then you ask, well, who is going to be able to use digital identities and this digital technology? And if the powerful can use it more than the less powerful, then what might happen to the distribution of power? And the answer is, in many significant areas, these technologies can worsen the asymmetry of power while improving the asymmetry of information. And the net effect can be really bad. So we show this very systematically across a number of cases showing different combinations of uh, violations. In some cases, we expect digital identities to improve outcomes, and the evidence shows that actually happens. In other types of violations, where the powerful can use these technologies to extract more, we don't expect it to happen given our theoretical framework, and the evidence actually suggests that's exactly what is happening. In fact, many authoritarian regimes in developing countries love digital identities and digital um, technologies because it allows them to repress, control, and extract more from their citizens. So who is driving digital identities in developing countries? Is China, Chinese technologies, face recognition technologies, a lot of inbuilt systems which are now being built into digital identities, and the World Bank and the West is playing catch-up not to be left out of these markets by actually doing not such dissimilar things. So we have a really big problem here of making people aware that in the political settlements, in the, given the distribution of power in developing countries, we need to be very careful about where to apply these things and where not to. And one of the things that we are working with in SOAS ACE with our digital identities approach is to work with governments and, and international agencies to say this is a very good idea in certain areas, but in other areas, actually, we should be using our effort and our political capital and our influence to slow down the rollout of these systems in certain applications. Well, that's a very interesting point, I think, because it ties so well into this notion that the technology itself is neither good nor, nor evil. It always depends on in which context you use it. What I would like to do is maybe to shift the conversation now a little bit to the academic research side, because a lot of our listeners, I guess, are young, up-and-coming scholars on corruption. And... Um, I would like you to briefly mention a few areas where we need more academic research and maybe a few where we need less academic research. So what do you think 
have we done enough of and what do you think we don't have done enough of yet? So I think um, we, we probably don't need any more sort of generic level approaches to trying to explain why corruption happens or what its impact is or how damaging it is. You know, we, we broadly know we don't need more attempts to develop, you know, more sophisticated national level measures even though such things are still going on. We don't need a lot of research taking corruption either as a, a, an independent variable which explains certain uh, developmental outcomes or as a dependent variable which is explained by a whole series of different factors. I think, you know, we broadly know enough in, in terms of, you know, what drives corruption, what impact it has, what damage it does. That's established. What we need more research on is both the way that different forms of corruption actually function in practice and what the specific drivers of particular types of corruption are in particular contexts. And that that's true both at the level of the kind of very, very detailed and incredibly important work that's coming out through the SOAS ACE projects as well as the the GIA's projects, which are looking at particular problems in particular settings, that's, that's extremely important. I think we need also to understand more about the drivers of corruption from outside of the corrupt setting themselves. So, you know, the kinds of work that's taking place under the uh, illicit financial flows work that, that's going on within GIA. So we've got some really interesting work being led by people like... Uh, Dan Haberly on trying to construct a sort of financial secrecy indices which explains the capacity of uh, some places to hide uh, illicit money and trying to get a better sense of those flows over time and relating them to regulatory changes in the international financial architecture, I think is is extremely revealing of, of what have been the key drivers of, of some of the, the main changes that we've seen. Equally, I think the work by people like John Heathershaw and his colleagues who are looking in detail at the role of law enforcement agencies or uh, financiers, banks, etc., in enabling a lot of the illicit financial flows to find locations around the world, how that operates in practice, I think is something that we need a lot more investigation of so that we don't simply assume that when you have corruption in a particular place that it's the fault of that place and that that work is also reinforced by work that Jackie Harvey's doing on Nigeria as a as a good example of you know people say you need better beneficial ownership registers but beneficial ownership registers in a place where none of the information that you have is reliable or trustworthy is the question is what's the point because nobody's going to believe what what it says anyway and what can you do with it so so this kind of work i think is something that needs to be done we need much much more research on corruption as a an element of commodity trading there's a huge space there for understanding trading relationships and and how corruption is tied to them which hasn't really been looked at in, in anything like enough detail. We need to look at corruption and particularly its relationship to sort of environmental degradation, corruption in regards to wildlife, in regards to the way that particular forms of forestry and agriculture 
are being promoted and the damage that's being done through some of those those arrangements. And uh, I think what we need to move away from is the kind of the generic concern with corruption to much more specific focus on particular problems in particular places and understanding what's driving them, how how they're happening, what can be done to try and challenge them. So, you know, as you would expect, I'm saying we need much more of the kind of research that you know <laughs> the whole ACE program is designed to to promote. <laughs> So Mushtaq, I would appreciate if you could maybe specifically speak to the economists among our listeners um, who might be interested in corruption. Where would you point them towards which research that's already existing you, you would recommend? And yeah, similar to what Paul just answered, what do you think we need more of? What do you think we need less of? I think economists have a approached the problem of corruption largely from the perspective that It's a transparency accountability problem. It's an asymmetric information problem. And they've looked for correlations between factors which affect transparency and accountability, corruption, and then use corruption to explain outcomes. And this is the kind of generic story that Paul was saying, we've got a lot of, there are lots of papers on these things, and they haven't really made much of an impact. And I think that I would address the question slightly differently, not just for corruption research, but for any policy research in social sciences. The one thing that I think young people coming in to do economics and policy research must ask themselves all the time, the research that I'm doing is going to show an evidence-based solution to a certain problem. Who is the market for this? Who is interested in this? The idea might be very good, There might be a solution that the, the data tells us is possible, but is there a constituency, a group, an organization in a developing country, which in terms of its real interest, not its rhetorical statement of its interests, but from its past behavior, that we can see that this is how they have behaved. This is how some of these people have behaved in the past. Is it likely that this policy proposition is something that they will bite? That they will say, this is really in our interest. Now we are going, we have now got an understanding which furthers our interest, and they are then going to run with it and implement it. And if you have a doubt about that, that actually the people I am writing this paper for are making so much money doing something else that nothing I say will be of interest to them, then you have a problem. Because then you are writing a paper for a non-existent market that is not there in the developing country. It might be a very good idea, but it's not going to be implemented. It will sit on a shelf somewhere, even if it is a profoundly data-based and uh, well-researched solution. This is, by the way, not just about anti-corruption studies. It's about a lot of policy research that is done in developing countries by economists. And to me, corruption is a lens for understanding why much of policy fails. When policy interventions fail, and by policy I mean, you know, we have a health policy, you have education policy, environmental policy, industrial policy. When policy fails, sometimes it is simply because the policy was badly thought through. But most of the time, The policy may have worked in another universe, may have worked in another country, but in this country, the way you are trying to implement it 
is actually against the interests of lots of powerful people who are supposed to be implementing this policy. So when it comes to the implementation, they capture the resources and not deliver the outcome. And this capturing of policy resources is the form of corruption that I'm most interested in because this is a solvable problem, right? The big, you know, informality and political corruption, these are long-term solutions. But the immediate policy resources that are captured and which is what economists are really interested in is actually all of it, you can think of it as a corruption problem, right? So if you want to improve your health policy, if you want to improve your education policy, the question I would ask is first understand the country really well and look at how it has devised these strategies for delivering health, education, encouraging industry, encouraging SMEs, its credit policy, and look at it in the context of the organizational interests of this country. Who are the types of doctors, schools, universities, firms, SMEs who are getting these resources? Are some of them able to deliver better results if you had designed the intervention differently? Would they have used them better in terms of and not engaged in the kind of rent capture, fraud, corruption, whatever you want to call it? Is there an avoidable problem here? It's when I find an avoidable problem, and you might think this is really bizarre, but I get really excited, right? If I can't find an avoidable problem, if I can't find a feasible solution, I move on to something else. Right. Because there, you know, there are lots of interesting problems in the world, you know, but they might not be solvable right now. And by the time they are solvable, the reality will have changed. There will be new technologies, new issues, new political movements. And so it, your research then becomes irrelevant. It's finding those areas, which we have been talking about here, where you have a health policy, but maybe it's designed wrongly so that the doctors who really want to go out and, and do their work aren't being able to do that, and they're forced to be corrupt. And there are other doctors who don't want to go there who are also corrupt, but now everybody is corrupt. And you don't know who are the people who are corrupt for reasonable reasons and those who are corrupt for unreasonable reasons. Until you can separate the two, you have no policy intervention because everyone is corrupt. It's that kind of thing which which makes me both both frustrated but excited and, and, and doing my research. Unfortunately, there is not much of that happening because... The problem with economists um, increasingly is that we have lost this passion to understand problems at a very country and sector specific way. We try to work with big data sets. And when we go into the country and um, problems in detail, we get infatuated with pseudo-scientific solutions like RCTs and so on, which are actually not very well suited to the kinds of problems that we are addressing. And let me briefly say why they are not very well yeah, suited. I would appreciate it because, I mean, uh, the, the most recent Nobel Prize in economics went Absolutely. to Flo and, and there are lots Bajani. Of, so I think that would be really interesting for our listeners to hear your criticism of RCTs. So I think RCTs are very well mm -hmm. suited to certain kinds of problems, right? As you know, it came up in the sphere of testing pharmaceutical products. And the issue is that there are so many factors that can affect the outcome of a disease, that you need a scientific way of saying whether the medicine had an effect or whether it was something else. So the randomized control trial is deliberately set up in such a way that you can separate out 
the effects of the medicine from the other things. Now, why does it work so well in pharmaceuticals? Is because the treatment, which is here the medicine, is being inflicted on a problem, which is a bacteria or a virus, which is not changing that rapidly. The bacteria or the virus is not a conscious organism which is responding to your treatment. So when you find that in two randomly selected samples, one is your control and one is the treatment, your medicine works in one group and not the other group, you can say with a lot of confidence that even taking account all the other factors which affect the outcomes, this one, the one thing that we are interested in, had an impact. Now, think of this as a corruption trial, right? You are testing out different treatments, different policy designs, different incentive structures, but also punishment structures, different transparency mechanisms, different accountability mechanisms. But here, the problem you are treating after you have randomized and, and selected your control and your treatment segments, the, the thing that you are testing it out on is not a bacteria or a virus which takes tens of years to mutate. It's a human organization of a rent-seeking coalition which can see what you are doing and will immediately start mutating. They will immediately start working out ways of getting around your intervention because this is a deliberative organism and not a biological organism. A rent-seeking organism is a deliberative organism, right? It has a network, it has a form of hiding itself or creating its internal flows and so on. So your RCT might catch people off guard and they don't know what hit them. And for the period then that you are doing your RCT, you might see a treatment effect. But you can be sure that those organisms will be mutating very rapidly and within six months or so, it will be a different organism. And then your treatment might not work. So to do this properly, you have to do something else, which people who do RCTs don't bother to do, which is to figure out how might this organism deliberately evolve in response to my treatment. In other words, you need to have an understanding of the political settlement there, who are the powerful organizations, how are they networked, how will they respond to this particular treatment. And if you haven't figured that out, even if you get a positive result in your RCT, in the same place, forget about somewhere else, in the same place, one year later, that same treatment might not work because your organisms have changed. This is a fundamental problem, and the analogy between a bacteria and a virus and a rent-seeking network is so radically different that a scientific approach that works in identifying treatments for one might be totally inappropriate for identifying treatments for the other. The challenge of anti-corruption research is to have good theory and evidence on how the actual organizations whose behavior we are trying to change are likely to respond to particular types of interventions, which means we need to have a really good understanding of how they have networked um, in the past, what kinds of organizational power they have, because the one thing that we can definitely say is that they will try to respond to interventions which try to reduce their access to rents. So we need to understand how they have behaved in the past, what their capacities and interests are. And once we have done that, and this is the really difficult part of research into anti-corruption, once we have that, at that point, we might indeed design an RCT and some interventions um, to validate 
the hypothesis that we have. And at that point, an RCT may indeed be very useful in terms of validation, but an RCT in itself is very unlikely to discover what those viable and sustainable interventions are. That is my problem with RCTs. It's not a problem with the method. It's the way the method is used by people who really haven't a proper understanding of how corruption is working in a context and how the rent-sharing networks and the networks of power in, in that context are operating. Here, without a properly grounded theory based on evidence of how particular networks are likely to mutate and respond to interventions or transparency initiatives or accountability initiatives, if we simply try out commonsensical interventions which uh, rely on um, messaging or transparency or other kinds of relatively simple interventions, they may show a treatment effect in the short run because these organizations haven't had the time to respond or mutate. But over the long run, most of them may turn out to be unsustainable. And that is why, without a very sound theoretical basis on which the hypothesis has been based based on past evidence, I'm often somewhat suspicious about the results generated by RCTs in terms of their sustainability over time once these power networks have had the chance to respond. Well, thank you very much. You both have been very generous with your time. Thanks so much for all the very insightful points you made. So thanks again also from my part and we really appreciate that you took the time for us. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to Kickback. If you want to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, please check out the show notes. We will provide some links there. Mushtaq and Paul often refer to the GIAs and the SOAS ACE projects. In part one of the interview, they elaborate in depth about the fascinating work they do. Paul also mentions the Panama and Paradise Papers and how they have worsened public perception of corruption but tremendously helped policymakers to understand the complexity of corruption. If you want to learn more about that, check out episode 6 of Kickback when Matthew Stevenson interviews Frederick Obermeier who was one of the key journalists in uncovering the Panama Papers. Finally, some Kickback housekeeping. A big shout out this week goes out to our listeners from Paraguay. With your help, we entered the top five in the Apple Podcast charts for science podcasts. So thanks a lot for your support. Speaking of support, we are always happy to receive positive reviews and ratings wherever you get your podcast from. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. Before we end, I would also like to take the chance to thank all of our Patreons. You really help us moving this project forward. So thanks a lot for your support. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Köbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me. My name is Christopher Starke. See you next time. And most importantly, stay safe and stay home whenever you can. <laughs>